You are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Mike Melito. Second Samuel chapter 19 today. If you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, Second Samuel chapter 19. And uh, we we talked last week, we kind of came to the end of a, a season where Absalom, David's son, had t- taken over the, um, the kingdom and was wanting to kill David. And if you want to learn more about that and how Absalom got to that point, you can go back on the app or the website, lifechurchin.com, and you can listen to some of those messages from any campus, by the way. And that's one thing you... Uh, you have as an option here. We're multi-site and every campus pastor preaches the same passage, but it's not exactly the same message. We share notes, yes, but we pray and we, uh, we write the message for each campus and you could get all kinds of different angles, uh, all that are biblical. And, uh, and so I would suggest that you do that. But we came to the end and we ended at a, at a real tragic moment where David was looking for news and uh, you, you would assume the news would be he wants the news that, you know, the enemy had been defeated and the kingdom was being restored. Uh, but when he had the mess- messenger come to him, the first one, Ahimaaz, came to him and said, all is well. You know, the kingdom is, is uh, restored, so to speak. And his first question was, what about Absalom? What about the young man, Absalom? And Ahimaaz didn't have the, the courage to say. He knew, he absolutely knew because Joab said, you don't need to go tell this news because today the king's son is dead. By the way, Joab was probably remembering the last time someone delivered news like that to David. It was an Amalekite who said he killed Saul. And guess what David did to the Amalekite? He killed the Amalekite. So Joab was probably looking out for Ahimaaz. Um, but Ahimaaz was like, I want to go anyway. And, and probably because he didn't want to just be the bearer of bad news. But he couldn't tell David the whole truth. How many know we need to know the whole truth? We need, we need all of it. And, uh, and so it was the Cushite that said that told him that his son was dead. And we had this, this scene, this really dramatic scene in verse 33, where it says he was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber above the city gate and he wept and he cried, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in, instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. That's where we ended last week. <laughs> A really heavy moment. And we pick it up in chapter 9, right where we left off. And I just want to side note for you, these chapters, the, the break of these chapters, they're not really necessarily biblical. They're, they were added as people were putting together these words. I think this is just one thought. And you'll see why in a minute. So 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping. He's mourning over Absalom. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops because on that day the troops heard the king is grieving over his son. So they returned quietly that day like troops come in when they're humiliated after fleeing a battle. But the king covered his face and cried loudly, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. So he's still deeply, deeply moved. And uh, in a time where the scriptures might have just said something like that, 
and David was deeply moved, it goes on to tell us more in detail what he was doing. And I think there's a reason for that. The Holy Spirit wants us to learn something from that, right? Obviously, he loves his son. Obviously. And, he, you know, even though his son was, was going against him, fathers, godly fathers, we love our sons and our daughters no matter what. Amen? That's why that's our vision statement, fathering sons and daughters, because God our Father, godly fathers, never give up on their kids. So there's the obvious reason why he's mourning over his son. But the prophet Nathan's words had to be echoing in his mind. When he had slept with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, that's the turning point for all of David's life. And, and the prophet Nathan said, God is going to forgive you of that. You're not going to die. But he said, the sword will not depart from your house forever. Right? It's David's guilt because he's thinking of that. He's got to be thinking of what Nathan said, right? And that guilt is inflaming his grief. Nathan assured him that, that he wouldn't die, but his infant son would die, and he did. And then Abnon was murdered, and now Absalom. David knew that his sin had set the sword loose in his household. And that's why he's saying, if only it was me, I'm the guilty one. Yes, Absalom's guilty too. But he's got to know, going all the way back, and fathers, leaders, you know what I'm talking about. We could see points in our, our life where we've made decisions, and you're like, man, if I would have made a different decision there, things would have been different. So there's guilt that in, in some ways hadn't been dealt with because he, he wasn't really fully punished for it. And that was aggravating his grief. So it was, it was more intense, right? So a safe kingdom, but a sad king. So I don't know if any of you know this. There's five stages of grief, right? Uh, there's denial. It's more than a river in Egypt, right? Uh, anger, <laughs> bargaining, depression, and acceptance, those, those tend to be, most psychologists would tell you, those tend to be the stages we go through when we're processing grief in our life. And uh, I'm no psychologist, all right? And we're not going to sit here and examine David's head, but I will say this. Um, I think he began these stages of grief before Absalom died. I think he was in a state of denial when he asked Joab to deal um, lightly and gently with Absalom, if you remember that. Absalom had done some horrible things. He, he, had, he had taken over the kingdom and he rebelled and he slept with uh, these women in front of all of the nation of Israel. He was, it was disgusting, really. And so when he said, please deal gently with Absalom, the young man Absalom, I think he was in a stage of denial. Like, What? And we talked about this last week. It's like he wanted both things. He wanted the kingdom of Israel to be restored, and he wanted Absalom to be saved. And there, it couldn't be that way. For God to restore the kingdom, Absalom and the kingdom's enemies had to be dealt with. We can't have it both ways. It's the same in our lives. If we're going to welcome Jesus into our life to bring peace and reconciliation in our lives, then the sin in our life has to die. We can't have it both ways. If you're trying to have it both ways, you too are in a state of denial. It doesn't work. 
right? So I think he was in that state earlier, and what we're seeing now, I think, is maybe bargaining or depression. He said, again, in verse 33, if I had died instead of you. What ifs and if onlys are a tell for bargaining? He's bargaining with his guilt, right? And he's dealing with that. And it's understandable, right? I could understand it. I could totally understand his grief. I'm not sure, and I don't ever want to know if I could work through that if, that, if, if any, either of my kids died. I don't want that. None of us want that. No parent should have to deal with it. It still happens in this world. But when you just try to imagine it, you could totally understand this whole scene, right? But he's a leader. He's the king, right? It says this in verse 2 again. It says, the king is grieving over his son. Verse 3, they return to the city quietly like troops that come in when they're humiliated after fleeing a battle. Why are they humiliated? They won the battle. And David, as they're coming in, he covers his face and he's still crying Absalom. And his grief was having a, a ripple effect. It was affecting those around him. It was hurting those around him. And can I tell you, leader or not, we have to be aware of whether grief consumes us in our life to the point that it hurts others around us. I heard it said this way one time, and I didn't understand it fully, and I don't necessarily love the saying, but this is another way to say it. Uh, a, young, uh, a young person in our youth ministry had said, um, will you pray for me that I stop bleeding on others? And I thought, what? <laughs> like, what is that? And she's talking about this. When our grief overflows in our life, there's a wound overflowing in our life. It affects us. That's what she's talking about. And if we're not careful, we could do the same thing. It's okay to have a healthy time of grief. It is, however, not okay to stay there, right? Allow, and allow the grief to consume us, to find us to the point where we can't see the blessings around us anymore, it paints everything we see, and whether we know it or not, it starts to hurt the people we love. The people we love start to think, am I not good enough? Maybe I need to be sad all the time with them. Or they feel guilty for when they're happy about things in their life. And that is just compounded when you're a leader. And arguably, in some way, we could say we're all leaders in some point. But whether you're a leader or not, you still have a sphere of influence. And so your grief can affect not just you, but those we love. And so this is happening, and it's, it's kind of sad to see how it's rippling. And verse 5 says this, And Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have shamed all your soldiers, those who saved your life as well as your sons, your wives, and your concubines, by loving your enemies and hating those who love you. Today you have made it clear that the commanders and the soldiers mean nothing to you. In fact, today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us dead, it would be fine with you. That's, uh, that's pretty confrontational there. That's what David was communicating. Again, he wanted it both ways. Right? And he can't have it both ways. And when we allow our grief to consume us, 
This is what people think. He's saying, you love Absalom more than us. We defended you. We love you. He rebelled against you. He did disgusting things. And I believe that you would have been perfectly fine with with him being alive and us being dead. That hurts. That really hurts when you have someone in front of you who treats you like you're dead and wishes they had the one who was really dead back. That hurts. And Joab was confronting him on that. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says, The wounds of a friend are faithful. But when an enemy kisses you, he is deceiving you. Friends will stab you to your face. Enemies in your back. And this had to hurt for David to hear. But Joab, in this, in this particular instance, was being a good friend. David, you don't see it, but the way you're acting right now is hurting. It's demoralizing and saying to everyone else that they're worth nothing to you. And he didn't want to see that for David. He didn't want that for the troops. When I was working on this, it reminded me, nerd alert, roll your eyes now, of a clip from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) The clip illustrates this perfectly, and you don't have to know all the story of Lord of the Rings to appreciate this scene, only to know that this young man had a brother who died in battle and his father was consumed with his grief for his brother. And his living son was standing right in front of him. We got this clip so you can see what happens. Here do I swear fealty and service to Gondor, in peace or war, in living or dying, from, from this hour henceforth until my Lord release me or death take me. And I shall not forget it, nor fail to reward that which is given. Fealty with love. Valor with honor, disloyalty with vengeance. I do not think we should so lightly abandon the outer defenses, defenses that your brother long held intact. What would you have me do? I will not yield the river in Pelennor unfought. Osgiliath must be retaken. My lord, Osgiliath is overrun. Much must be risked in war. Is there a captain here who still has the courage to do his lord's will? You wish now that our places had been exchanged. That I had died and Boromir had lived. Since you were robbed of Boromir, 
I will do what I can in his stead. If I should return, think better of me, Father. That will depend on the manner of your return. If you're a nerd or not, you get it? You see, you see what I'm talking about? Joab is seeing the same thing in David, but maybe not fully developed yet, and he's trying to prevent it from happening. That's what it looks like when grief consumes you. His own son, I wish you were dead. And Joab's telling David in so many words, the way you're acting is communicating to me and the rest of those that you love, you'd prefer them dead than your rebel son. The wounds of a friend. Listen, when we're grieving, friends comfort us, yes, but that's not all a good friend will do. A really good friend will tell us when it's time to move on and notice the world around us once again. And it's tough to hear when we're in our grief. We don't want to hear it. And sometimes we hear it from someone who's like, oh, we, you, you just don't care. You don't understand, right? But what becomes of us when we tune out the voices like that when we, that we need to hear is we end up in a lifetime of pain and misery. And those who stick with us will be in that misery with us. But many will walk away because they just can't handle it, Right? And it's only compounded in our lives by the more people we have in our lives. When we're leaders, it demoralizes those we lead. And Job's reminding this. Look at what he says in verse 7. Now get up. Go out and encourage your soldiers. For I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will remain with you tonight. This will be worse for you than all the trouble that has come to you from your youth until now. And you know that's a lot of trouble, right? He says, get up. You're going to lose everything. You need to get up. Verse 8, so the king got up and sat in the city gate, and all the people were told, look, the king is sitting at the city gate. Then they all came into the king's presence, and meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his tent. People throughout all the tribes of Israel were arguing among themselves, saying, the king rescued us from the grasp of our enemies. And he saved us from the grasp of the Philistines. But now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, the man we anointed king over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about restoring the king? King David sent word to the priests Zadok and Abiathar, saying to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to restore the king to his palace? The talk of all Israel has reached the king at his house. You, my brothers, you're my flesh and blood, so why would you be the last to restore the king? Here it is again, nerd alert. It's the return of the king. There you go. Some of you get it, some of you don't. But that's what's happening right now. He gets up. He starts to act kingly, even as he carries his grief, and the people begin to talk about honoring him again as king. And they remind themselves and others, remember, the king rescued us. Remember, the king saved us. Why aren't we restoring the king? That, that, that kind of talk is happening. 
But you know who's not saying that yet is Zadok and Abiathar, and that's why the king says, why are you the last to restore the king? He's still the anointed, chosen by God, man after God's heart, king of Israel. He never, the truth is, he never stopped being the rightful king. There were just those who usurped David's place as king. And some are recognizing that now, but some perhaps are holding on to whatever authority they think they have, right? But that's not the matter. It was not their place to deny returning of the king. Another scene, I won't show it, but the guy you just saw in that clip, the, the mean old dad, he was what you called the steward of Gondor. The, Gondor didn't have a king. There was, they, he was missing for a long time, not to get into it. But when they didn't have a king, they had a steward, someone who would take care of it in place of the king until the king came back. But when word came to him that the king was coming back, he said, I'm not going to bow to this guy. He did. He, he said, I'm not going to bow to this ranger of the north. And the messenger, Gandalf, he says to him, authority's not given to you to deny the return of the king. And to that, he says, the rule of Gondor's mine, no other. Zadok and Abiathar are wrestling with this same concept. And David's saying, why should you be the last to return the king to his place? You know, I think this is a good question for the church today. Why not let the king return to his rightful place in the church? Stop with the compromise. No more placating to the culture. Stop with the showy faith. Let's bring the king back. Let's let Jesus lead the church. We've only ever been stewards of his kingdom. And it's audacious, even blasphemous, for us to act like we can call the shots, like we can manufacture moves of God because it gives people all the feels, or market Jesus like he's some kind of product to be sold, or reduce him to a slogan, or a good luck charm. Why not let the king return? Let him rule. Now, before you get too excited about that, and point the finger at church leaders and say, yeah, pastor, yeah, church leaders, why don't you let Jesus be the king? You know, you're just, you're just you know, adorning yourself with influence and whatever, and you, you're putting yourself on a pedestal. Before you start to think about that and say, okay, pastor, you say, why not let the king return? Why aren't you letting the king return? Listen, the organization, Life Church, the campuses, the church across the street, those things, this building, that's not the church. You are the church. I am the church. You are the steward of your life. Are you, steward, running your own life? Are you, steward, wearing Jesus like a charm and not letting him call the shots in your life? It's audacious even blasphemous for us to act like we can live our lives the way we want to and reju reduce Jesus to a box that we check, a social convention, our favorite verse on a bumper sticker, or as a social media status. Are you, how are you stewarding? Are you letting the king in your life? 
Are you restoring him? A majority of Christians today, by the way, will at best attend church twice a month. Now, you're here today. I'm probably preaching to the choir. Unless you're sitting here going, ah, that's me if I'm good. (laughs) Love you. I'm being a friend right now. I'm just giving you the truth, right? But it's hard for most church organizations to get things done because, and again, remember, I'm preaching to the choir, so if you're sitting here, don't feel like I don't appreciate you. But it's hard for churches to get things done because sometimes it's really hard to count on the people who make up that church. And, and there's, there's all kinds of problems with even beliefs within the Christian Church of America. 31%, less than one-third of Christians... Look around this room. One-third of you, according to this, read your Bibles regularly. 80%, 8 80% of Christian young adults, someone forecasted this years ago, I didn't believe it could ever happen, 80% of Christian young adults have no problem with having sex outside of marriage. None. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a large percentage of Christians who either are okay with somebody deciding they're a different gender or at least afraid to say anything. I'll tell you the most loving thing you could do for someone walking through that is tell them the truth. Be the friend whose wounds are faithful so they don't get other kinds of wounds. And here's the thing that that just blew my mind. I was looking up these stats it says, although large majorities of, of the public claim to be deeply spiritual and say that their religious faith is very important in their life, only 15% of those who regularly attend a Christian church ranked their relationship with God as the top priority in their life. 15% that go to church regularly rated their relationship with God as the top priority in their life. Now, I'm asking the Holy Spirit, God, examine everyone's heart here. And if you're feeling the heat right now, I just want to tell you, that's God's mercy and grace. That's not condemnation. That's conviction. And it's designed to drive you to God, not away from God. Because his mercy and grace is what we get when we run to God. When we say, okay, I'm going to let the king return in my life. It's mercy and grace, not condemnation. You want to know how to get condemnation? Keep living your own life. Doing your own thing. Not letting him be king. But when you're in Jesus, Romans says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We love the first part of that verse. But there is a condition for those in Christ Jesus. And can I just say, you can go to church every week of the year. If your relationship with God is not top priority in your life, you're not there yet. You say, oh, I can't be perfect, Pastor. It's not about being perfect. If we learn anything from David, it's not about being perfect. The Bible calls him a man after God's heart, and look at the mess his life is. How is he a man after God's heart? He keeps coming back to God. He keeps prioritizing God. He keeps showing people the same mercy God shows him. That's a man after God's heart. God is a priority in his life, the priority. He had one moment of indiscretion. 
and he's paying for it, and that's true in our lives. But he didn't turn his back on God for that, right? Jesus is the king whether we treat him so or not. And the best idea for us is to allow him to be king of our lives and not wait till later. Not only will our lives on earth not be wasted, but our lives will matter for eternity in him. So why not? Why not let him return? Look at this, verse 13. Telemassa, aren't you my flesh and blood? May God punish me now and do so ever so severely if you don't become commander of my army now instead of Joab. That's a very bold statement. Amasa, like Joab, was David's nephew. But in his offer to make him the commander-in-chief, Amasa was a rebel, right? He should have been punished. He should not be being rewarded for his treason. He sided with Absalom, right? He gave no evidence of loyalty, nor was there any proof that he could be trusted. And David says this, you receive me back as king, and I will make you commander. And moreover, Joab, is, Joab his current commander, he's hearing this. I, you know, what is he thinking? David, right? I kind of got the image of the prodigal son returning to his father here. You could look that up later in the, the brotherhood. Anyways, Amasa did not deserve this. And, you know, you look at stuff like this and you go, David, man, what's your problem? That's crazy. Why would you, why would you do something like that? This guy deserves punishment and you're going to make him a leader in your kingdom? Do you remember this verse in Romans chapter 5? Where Paul says, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us so that we can be reconciled, so that we can be saved, set apart, and ultimately one day reign with him in his kingdom forever. And like Amasa, we should totally be punished, not rewarded for our treason and our sin, our usurping of his authority in our life. If we're sitting here and we're listening to, you know, if God's not a prayer in our life and we're being convicted, we, we don't deserve to reign with him. And yet when we let him come back into our lives, he says, see if I won't lift you up. We're just like a massa. So when we see David call Amasa to be commander of his army, we could be reminded of this. Jesus is calling you to serve in his kingdom. He's calling you to be a kingdom builder. He's calling you to have a place in that kingdom. He's calling you to have a life that matters for eternity. So here's the question. Why not let the king come back in your life or rule in your life if you've been moderately following him. Why not put him in the right place? And when David did that, listen, listen what happens. Verse 14. He won over all the men of Judah and they unanimously sent word to the king. Come back. 
you and all your servants. And then the king returned. And when he arrived at the Jordan, Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and escort him across the Jordan. It was David's mercy that drew the hearts of Israel back to him. They remembered he's a good king. They remembered that they flourished under him. They remembered that he rescued them. They remembered that he rescued them from the Philistines. And all that, that's what mercy did for them. Romans chapter two. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing God's mercy is intended to lead you to repentance. That same mercy, only 10 times more powerful. Jesus' mercy, grace, kindness should draw us to repentance and to restore him as the king of our own lives. To turn away from our sin and turn towards him instead. To let him call the shots and not taking our own way. Therefore, saving us, saving us from our sin, saving us from a pointless existence destined for destruction, to, fill, to live a life full of purpose and destined to rule and reign with him forever. Isn't God awesome? He's awesome. He's right here in this passage. David doing a shadow of what Jesus did, the King of Kings. Let's pray. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.